Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and uncertainties. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is an interlude episode that is, well, we'll just say in the middle of the year 2018. So I owe y'all an explanation for where I've been. It's called work and travel. So uh, last year, 2017, I was on travel 99 days out of the year. And this year so far, my calendar has 90 days of travel. It's ridiculously difficult to do a podcast when you're literally gone every other week for two and a half months. So that's my excuse. You can accept it or you can leave it. Uh, I know that I'm, I'm sure I've lost some subscribers because I haven't actually really said anything except on Facebook uh, for the last, well, six and a half months or so since episode 169 came out in December. So I do want to apologize. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have an ETA for when the next episode is going to be. I keep saying, oh, I'm going to start back up again at the beginning of next month. And then suddenly I have a major paper due, or I'm on travel literally the first of the month through the first week and a half of that month, or something else. So rather than making a promise that I'm not sure I'm going to be able to keep, all I'm going to say is that I really do hope to be able to resume podcasting sometime in the latter third of 2018. So I'm not dead yet, but I'm also not quite alive again. The first episode of the resumation of the podcast, I do intend to be uh, one that I've promised for quite a while, and that is tackling the idea of climate change. It's a multi-part episode, and I really want to make sure that I do it 100% correctly because, obviously, uh, for better or for worse, I would say for worse, it is a much politicized topic these days, even though really it's just about science so far as I'm concerned. So with that said, and with that apology out there, uh, hopefully you accept it. Hopefully you just keep the podcast in your feed, and when you see a new episode, you'll rejoice, and when you don't see a new episode, you'll just say, eh, he's busy, he'll get back to it. But I do want to announce that I do have a new podcast series out there, and when I say I... I really mean that I'm just sort of the talking head. Uh, This podcast is really the brainchild and the uh, work effort of Pat Roach out of Canada, as well as his wife, Christina Fernandez, out of Canada as well. And they are two of the co-hosts of the Reality Check podcast, a podcast that I've been a guest on multiple times, uh, including their episode 499. And Pat, Christina, and I have a new podcast out there called Five Minutes with an Astronomer. So the idea of the podcast is to do very short, quick, completely independent episodes, uh, as in there's not going to be an overarching five-part series on whatever, or at least we don't have that planned. Uh, So it's going to be these short little nuggets of science about disparate topics. Now, what I'm going to do for this podcast is I'm going to put in a few of the episodes that we've put out. There are currently 28 episodes. We're doing it in seasons. And basically, Pat said, hey, Stuart, whenever you have time, let's just sit down for a few hours and knock out a season. And that's what we did. So the first episode that I'm going to play is the introduction to the show.
set up the next episode. Now, I'm not going to play all episodes. As I said, I'm only going to play four of them. And there is going to be information between them, so don't just tune out now because you may have already heard them or you're not that interested in that particular topic. Welcome to 5 Minutes with an Astronomer, the show where we ask Dr. Stuart Robbins, a professional astronomer, about our universe. Each episode, we tackle one question and give Stuart the challenging task of helping us understand the topic in under five minutes without a script. I'm Pat Roach, and with me is Christina Fernandez. Hello. And of course, Stuart Robbins. Hi, astronauts. Since this is our first show, instead of asking Stuart a question, we wanted to take our scheduled five minutes as an introduction to who we are and what this show is about. Christina and I are two of four co-hosts of a long-running podcast called The Reality Check, where we explore a wide range of controversies and curiosities using science and critical thinking. We often have expert guests on the show, and one person who's been on more times than any other guest is Dr. Stuart Robbins from the Exposing Pseudoastronomy podcast. Since getting to know Stuart, I've had an idea in my head for some time about doing an astronomy-related podcast with five-minute episodes that cover a single topic. When I approached Stuart, he agreed, so here we are. Christina, other than because you're awesome, why are you here? <laughs> well, as Pat mentioned, I'm a co-host on The Reality Check, and science stuff has always fascinated me, especially astronomy. And I always enjoy when Stuart's on TRC. He always has a great way of explaining astronomical things, and I'm also a fan of short and sweet podcasts. I like to walk away from a podcast having learned something. So when Pat approached me about doing this show, I thought it was a really cool idea. Learning about our universe in five-minute bite-sized episodes? Sign me up. I also thought that your expertise as a professional publicist, someone who spends a lot of time condensing a bunch of information into something like a single press release, that that would make you a good yardstick for how well we've covered the topic. Mm -hmm. So lastly, Stuart. Who are you, and what brings you to a podcast studio in Toronto? Well, actually, I, I am here in studio in Casa Roach Fernandez. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, I'm here because, just as you said, uh, you approached me about doing this podcast, and I like the idea. So uh, I do my own podcast, as you mentioned, the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast, which is somewhat long-running. Uh, I started it in 2011, and... It is somewhat intermittent these days, but I got a lot of feedback from people wanting me to cover certain small topics about astronomy. And I've always said, well, I'm not going to cover that on my show because it's not really the focus of my show. The Exposing Pseudo Astronomy podcast is more what is a common misconception or mistake or pseudoscience or conspiracy or whatever related to astronomy that I can use as sort of a, a hook to get you in to teach a little bit about astronomy, physics, or geology or something related. People wanted me to cover sort of small, basic science topics, and I just said that's that's not really the, the hook for my show. Uh, so I thought that perhaps this five minutes with an astronomer idea was a way to expand on that, but also to just sort of branch out into some of this basic science stuff. Because I listen to podcasts. I think everyone here listens to podcasts, mm -hmm. right. especially if you, the listener, are listening to podcasts. You also listen to podcasts. Right. And I thought that there are other astronomy podcasts out there, but they don't necessarily cover things the way – I would have wanted them to be covered knowing the material myself, mm -hmm. or I think that, well, they, they might have actually gotten something wrong, or they might not have explained that very well, especially because I'm sort of more of a planetary scientist, and most other people who are astronomers 
who do podcasting are more astrophysics related. Right. And so when they cover astronomy that is more planetary science, I felt that they didn't do as good a job. And so you might find, dear listener, listening to this series that we might tend to cover more planetary related topics than others, but we will delve into other things like black holes and gravitational lensing and even sort of something that you might take for granted like GPS or the Doppler effect or something else. So we hope to cover a large range of topics and we hope to do it quickly in bite-sized segments that hopefully make sense of a topic that you might not have known about before or that you might be able to learn about in a different way than you knew about it before. All right. Well, that's a little bit about us and what we hope to do with the show. The idea is that we'll record a bunch of topics when Stuart's schedule allows, and then we'll release them all at once as sort of seasons. This is show number one, season number one. We hope you'll stick with us on our journey to learn more about the universe. Five Minutes with an Astronomer is an educational resource provided as a crossover of Stuart Robbins' Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast and members of the award-winning The Reality Check podcast. You can find out more about Stuart at podcast.sjrdesign.net. You can find The Reality Check at trcpodcast.com. And you can find our website at astronomyin5.com. Send any topic suggestions, questions, or feedback to info at astronomyin5.com. Okay, so that was the introduction as well as the show's outro. I'm not going to play the outro for the next three episodes. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play an episode on impact craters. And this was an episode that was really long. Uh, We actually recorded the vast majority of these episodes in Pat and Christina's basement because they have a sound recording studio that they uh, newly renovated. And I was visiting the area and they were kind enough to actually let me stay at their house. So we recorded uh, an entire afternoon, an entire evening, and then we recorded about an hour and a half the morning before I had to drive back to the U.S. So this was one of those episodes that we recorded that morning, I think. We decided let's just get it out because Stuart should be able to talk about craters because it's what he does. And so this is a little bit more about what I do during my day job that, well, keeps me from my podcast job. Welcome to 5 Minutes with an Astronomer, the show where we ask Dr. Stuart Robbins, a professional astronomer, about our universe. Each episode, we tackle one question and give Stuart the challenging task of helping us understand the topic in under five minutes without a script. I'm Pat Roach, and with me is Christina Fernandez. Hey, everyone. And of course, Stuart Robbins. Hi, space junkies. Rather than ask a very specific question every episode, on some of these episodes, we've simply asked Stuart to tell us interesting things about certain objects. Christina, what do we want to know about today? Well, I'm sure everyone's heard of craters, but Stuart, this is your field of work. So can you tell us more about craters? I can, and I can tell you why this is actually a very, very important field that NASA should continue to spend research funds on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There are three sort of broad reasons why craters are important. Uh, The first one, more of a general reason, is that they tell us what happens when things with lots of energy hit other things. This is, uh, to put it bluntly, pretty important for military applications. 
if you have a certain bomb with a certain energy yield, you want to know what kind of destruction that's going to do. Wow. So a lot of the crater researchers in the 1950s and 60s also worked for the Department of Defense, at least in the United States. Interesting. So this is basically an explosion of a point object into the surface of a planet or moon or asteroid or comet or whatever. And because of that, different kinds of things happen than you would normally get. So in either a past or future episode, depending on what order these come out in, you'll learn about the sound speed of an object, which is the speed with which one adjacent molecule to another can tell the next molecule over what it's doing. And when an impact crater forms, you have a case where the impactor is traveling faster than the sound speed. And just all sorts of weird things happen to the rock or to the target that we don't see normally because it's really hard to achieve those kinds of velocities. We have special equipment at NASA, the Ames Vertical Research Gun, which will fire tiny projectiles at these kind of velocities to try to simulate craters. But this stuff is tiny, and it takes hours to really set up and prepare new samples. Mm. So nature has done the experiment for us. We just have to go and pick up the pieces and figure out what's going on. Right. We learn about different phases of matter with it, too, because when you have such a large impact, you experience pressures and temperatures, which, again, you don't normally get in everyday life. When Gene Shoemaker was studying a meteor crater out in Arizona, he found different kinds of shocked minerals, which he realized could not form under normal temperatures and pressures on Earth, had to have formed in only the kinds of temperatures and pressures you get during an impact event or a hypervelocity impact event. So besides general, uh, we like to study individual impact craters because they tell us a lot about local processes. So for example, it's a giant sand trap. So we get to understand things like aeolian or wind deposition. We get to study things like fluvial deposition or fluvial erosion. So on Mars, you have craters that have lakes, we think, might have had lakes in the past in them. Pluto, we see some craters with what we're calling a fluted terrain. So this is where you have uh, things like gullies that look like they're just sort of all throughout the entire crater. And it looks really weird but we don't see this on other kinds of terrain. And mm -hmm. so from studying these forms on craters themselves, we get to learn more about the uh, geologic history of the body because stuff flows down. Gravity works. Uh, we also learn about terrain properties. We learn that some stuff is harder or softer than other stuff. So the idea behind a crater is that because it's a hypervelocity impact, mm -hmm. most of the information about about the impactor itself is completely lost. It all gets down to the energy involved. If you have a different size impactor forming the same size crater as another impactor a few kilometers away, then you can use the differences in those craters to understand more about the terrain properties. Is it harder, softer? What's happened over geologic history? And because of that, we also like to study populations of craters because by comparing one to another, we can learn about what's happened in different areas on the planet. With that said, perhaps the most important aspect or implication or perhaps the most important application of craters is to ages. Craters are the only method that we have in the solar system other than on Earth and the moon to tell the relative surface age of an object. This oh, is where interesting. it's a very basic concept, actually. You assume 
that there has been a constant impact rate, at least at that body over time. And if a surface has more craters, that means that it must have been exposed to space longer than a surface that has fewer craters. Right. More craters, more impact. Makes sense. Therefore, it's been around longer. Yeah. It's a pretty simple concept. And with that, planetary scientists have come up with the geologic history, the relative stratigraphy, when stuff happened relative to other stuff throughout the entire solar system just because of impact craters. We can also use craters calibrated against radiometric dated samples from the moon because Apollo returned rocks from the moon and we can date those in labs on Earth and we can link a certain spatial density of crater to a certain age based on those radiometric samples. I've actually published papers on doing this. And with that, we can extrapolate from the moon to other bodies in the solar system in order to try to get an absolute age as opposed to just a relative age. Now, the absolute ages are prone to significant uncertainty, but it still lets us say, for example, that the Mars Valley networks were active around three and a half billion years ago, plus or minus half a billion years or so. But that's three and a half billion as opposed to, say, a hundred million. Similarly, on Mars, I've published papers where I've dated volcanoes and shown that the last gasps of major volcanism on Mars, which we'll probably cover in a different episode, has occurred about 60 to 100 million years ago. So the dinosaurs, if they had telescopes, would have been able to look at Mars and seen active volcanoes. And I think that's pretty neat. And so that's, uh, those are a couple of the reasons why craters are important. Now, I know we're already over our time, and the fact that we're going to go a little bit longer with a question, I take full responsibility for, but you said more impacts, older object. Surely you have to factor in things like the idea that we're shielded by Jupiter from getting hit by more things than we are hit by. So that's factored into the calibration. Jupiter is out there in the outer solar system, and so in the inner solar system, we are mostly hit by asteroids and not hit by icy objects. Uh, Estimates range from roughly 10% with modern estimates, as much as 80% from some much older estimates for cometary impacts. Most planetary scientists generally accept that cometary impacts in the inner solar system are more like 10% of the stuff that hits us. So that actually doesn't necessarily matter as much because, again, it's factored into the calibration that we get from the moon. And we assume that the inner solar system is generally going to be hit by the same stuff. So Mars is going to be hit by the same stuff Mm -hmm. as Mercury. Now, we do have to factor in different things like gravitational focusing. So the Earth-Moon system is larger gravitationally than Mars. And so we have to factor that in. We also have to factor in Kepler's second law, which uh, we covered in the Kepler's laws episode, because Kepler's second law holds that stuff closer to the sun is going to be moving faster. And so that's going to mean more energy. This is a basic kinetic energy equation where kinetic energy is proportional to velocity. So if your speed is faster, you have more energy. And so you're going to cause a bigger crater with a smaller object. Right. Thanks, Stuart. So the way we came up with topics for these podcasts was really a lot of what Pat was interested in. So he generated a list of about, I don't know, two dozen-ish different topics. And then as I sort of worked on jotting down notes for them, I said, hey, actually, we need to do these other topics too before we actually can get into this topic. So Pat really, really wanted to talk about rings. Uh, Planetary rings are neat. They're interesting. And I said, great. 
But we have to talk about the Roche limit first. So what this episode is, is it sets up the idea of planetary rings based on a basic, uh, well, it's a fundamental physics thing, uh, but applied to planetary dynamics and orbits, and that is the Roche limit. And it becomes a foundation for why we can talk about planetary rings. Welcome to 5 Minutes with an Astronomer, the show where we ask Dr. Stuart Robbins, a professional astronomer, about our universe. Each week we tackle one question and give Stuart the challenging task of helping us understand the topic in under five minutes without a script. I'm Pat Roach and with me is Christina Fernandez. Hey everyone. And of course, Stuart Robbins. Hi space junkies. Stuart, are you ready for today's question? Indeed. Excellent. I'll set the timer. Christina, could you please ask the question? Stuart, I really want to ask you about planetary rings, but you told us we had to cover the Roche limit first. What is that? So the Roche limit is really important to understanding planetary rings, and it was formulated by a guy in 1848. And I'm going to ask you to pronounce his name because you know French (laughs) and I don't. Edouard Roche. Sure. So the Roche limit is the balance between self-gravity and tidal forces or differential orbits, aka Kepler's third law. So what does that mean? Well, self-gravity is that any mass is going to exert a gravitational force on anything else, and that is going to keep stuff together. So if I have two billiard balls free-ranging in space, you know, cage-free, free-range, that kind of stuff in space, <laughs> those billiard balls are going to attract each other, and they're just going to lightly touch and then just stay together because of self-gravity, gravitational pull from the two objects exerted on themselves. However, if you go near a massive object, tidal forces can rip you apart. So uh, tidal force is where you have the part of the object that is closer to the massive object. So let's say billiard ball A is closer to the sun than billiard ball B. Billiard ball A is going to be pulled more towards the sun than billiard ball B. And because of that different amount of pull by the sun, it's going to rip the two billiard balls apart. It's going to overcome their own self-gravity. Got it. Yeah. Not only that, but you have differential rotation. Assuming that the two objects are in orbit around the sun, then the object that is closer, billiard ball A, is going to move faster in its orbit around the sun than billiard ball B. Also Kepler's law. Also Kepler's law. So that's Kepler's third law. So that means that you have two things acting effectively to rip the object apart. It wants to stay together through self-gravity, but tidal forces and differential rotation are going to try to pull the object apart. And where those balance is the Roche limit. If you're outside of the Roche limit, you can stay together. If you're inside of the Roche limit, you're pulled apart. When you're pulled apart, you effectively shred your object and you can form a ring, which is why I said this is very important before we get to planetary rings to cover Mm -hmm. this kind of topic. We also have the case where no satellite can coalesce within the Roche limit. So this means that, uh, again, we'll talk about more in planetary rings, but it means that you can't have a moon forming inside of that boundary because it would be ripped apart before it could even form. But... Satellites can orbit, if they've already formed, within the Roche limit, 
and still exist. At least two are known to be around Saturn, and here's a critical thinking question. Phobos currently orbits inside the Roche limit for Mars. Phobos is one of Mars' moons. Why hasn't it disintegrated yet? So my guess is that other than self-gravity, there's got to be something else acting on it. I don't know. This is my honest answer. Okay. So, Pat, you're close. I would just change one word uh, from on it to within it. Within it. So this is a case where the Roche limit does not factor in material strength. Okay. So you, as a person listening to this, or perhaps alien or extraterrestrial, you have a material strength to yourself. So if I were to pull on your arm, it would not detach from your body. The same thing goes with rocky objects. Those have a material strength to them. And so that's why Phobos has not yet disintegrated. We don't know exactly where it will disintegrate, but eventually it has to because the tidal force is going to overcome the material strength and already overcome the self-gravity if Phobos were simply a rubble pile of billiard balls. So that's the basics of Roche limits, and hopefully with that, we can get into perhaps a more interesting topic next time on planetary rings. But does that answer the question of what a Roche limit is? So Stuart, I think about Lagrangian points, the the episode that we've done on Lagrangian points as like a balancing point. And this seems to be a balancing point too. It's that distance from an object where self-gravity is balanced against the tidal forces. Inside that, you get shredded. Outside of it, you're okay. Sounds good. So in this last episode that I'm going to play for you, it is uh, Planetary Rings. And as I said, we kind of needed Roche limits as a setup for talking about planetary rings because the whole reason that planetary rings can form is because of planetary dynamics and dynamics of orbits, and the Roche limit plays a big factor into whether you get rings or whether you get moons. So stay tuned after this episode plays out because I'm going to talk a little bit more about the series. Welcome to 5 Minutes with an Astronomer, the show where we ask Dr. Stuart Robbins, a professional astronomer, about our universe. Each episode we tackle one question and give Stuart the challenging task of helping us understand the topic in under 5 minutes without a script. I'm Pat Roach, and with me is Christina Fernandez. Hey, everyone. And of course, Stuart Robbins. Hey, space junkies. Stuart, are you ready for today's question? I am. Awesome. I'll set the timer. Christina, please ask the question. Stuart, when we recorded the Jupiter episode, I was admittedly surprised to learn that Jupiter has rings. It made me realize there's probably a lot of planetary rings that I actually don't know about. Can you tell us things like how they form, why they form, where they are in our solar system, stuff like that? Indeed I can. Formation. Okay, so rings probably form when a massive object, as in any object really because every object has mass, uh, when an object, we'll say, breaks up in orbit around a large planet, such as this can be from a collision or going inside of the Roche limit, as we heard in the last episode. Basically, the prerequisite is stuff is there and it's broken up or there's just a lot of it already forming there. So where are they in the solar system? Well, from what we know, we know that Jupiter has rings, Saturn has rings, Uranus, Neptune, all have rings. So those are all known gas and ice giants in the solar system. In 2013, we discovered that a minor planet called 10199 Chiriklo, or just Chiriklo for short, also has rings. So this was a really major discovery because before that, we had no idea really that a ring system could form around a pretty small object. Hmm. 
Chiriclo is about 225 to 248 kilometers across. And I should note that when I said in 2013, the discovery was made in 2013, but the paper wasn't published until 2014. It's a minor point, but one that we might get email about. <laughs> uh, so with that said, in 2015, it was also discovered that the minor object 2060 Chiron also has rings. This is, again, another relatively small object in the solar system. It's also been suggested that rings are around one or two exoplanets, but so far the evidence for those two is somewhat unlikely. They're probably something else. So rings have been discovered through several different mechanisms. So for Saturn, the longest known system that has a ring, or object that has a ring, it's been telescopes from Earth. Galileo figured it out back in the 1600s. So how do you do this from the ground? Well, what happens is that the planet moves in front of a star. And what we can do is we can watch that star's light. If the star's light just stays steady and then goes out when the planet crosses it and then comes back when the planet is done crossing it, then there's no ring system. But if the star perhaps dims slightly and then resumes its normal brightness and then dims completely when it goes behind the planet, then comes back to normal brightness and then dims very slightly and then goes back, that hints that there's another thing that's in there blocking the star's light. And so that's how we sort of had hints of it around Mm -hmm. Neptune. But Voyager 2 was the one that also discovered it around Uranus and Saturn. Now, with that said, what I just described for the hints about rings around Neptune, that's how we did it with Chiriclo and Chiron, is that we used telescopes from Earth to observe stars going behind these objects. And what we found was that the star's light dimmed repeatedly before going behind the object and then dimmed repeatedly after it had come out from behind the object. And it's from that that we know that these objects have rings. So with that said of how they're discovered, what about how close they can get to a planet? Well, we know that Saturn's rings are currently raining down on its atmosphere. So basically to the cloud tops. Uh, How far can they get from their planet? We're not entirely sure, but at least out somewhat beyond the Roche limit. Saturn's E-ring, for example, and Saturn's Phoebe ring are both outside of the Roche limit as are some others around Saturn. In these cases, this is where we have moons that are actively forming these rings and actively going through the ring material, so it's disturbing it as well as replenishing it, and so you don't get a stable moon forming from the ring material. Now with that said, let's move on to perhaps a different tidbit about planetary rings. Are they simple structures? The answer is no. Gravity works. These are actually made up of tiny bits of material And they are very complicated in their sort of macroscopic structure. So from afar, they look almost like a solid ring, like a record around Saturn. Christina, I know that you're very familiar with records. (laughs) (laughs) You have a few platinum ones hanging on your wall upstairs. But that's not what these are. They're not solid. They're made up of a lot of different particles and gravitational perturbations, not only from what they're orbiting, but also from self-gravity of the particles themselves, that's uh, gravity trying to pull them together, as well as disturbances from moons that are also around the planet, all act to create a lot of different intricate structure. When we had the Cassini spacecraft around Saturn, the camera system imaged a lot of really cool structure. I highly recommend that listeners after this uh, head onto the internet and find some of those close-up views that Cassini took 
of the ring system, and you can see some really neat things, including pileups along the edges of rings that were casting shadows on the rings during the Equinox observations. There's really cool material there, really cool structure, and the rings are an entire field of study. In fact, I spent three years studying Saturn's rings. Wow. With that said, we can also touch a little bit on composition. What are they made of? I said they're made of tiny objects. Well, in terms of what the material actually is, it's whatever formed the rings. So in this case, if an icy moon broke up, it's going to be ice. Right. If a rocky moon broke up, as will happen with Phobos eventually around Mars, it'll be a rocky set of rings. Mm -hmm. So far, since all of the rings that we've discovered in our solar system are in the outer solar system, they're mostly composed of ice. So does that sort of give you a broad overview of rings in the solar system? That's a great overview of rings in the solar system. So Stuart, just to summarize in a nutshell, a planetary ring is a ring orbiting an astronomical object. It's composed of solid material. And we used to think that we'd only really find rings around planets, but now you're suggesting that we may find rings around things like moons and exoplanets. Right, and there's actually a hint that Saturn's moon Rhea might have a ring itself. But uh, an important slight correction to your summary mm -hmm. is that the rings are not themselves solid. They're composed of bits and pieces of material that are in orbit that look afar as though they're a solid structure. And as you said, it could be ice, it could be rock, it really depends on what got shredded. Exactly. And that does it for the four episodes that I wanted to play for you on this podcast. I don't anticipate uh, ever really playing more episodes of this completely separate podcast series on this particular podcast. And that's because, well, they're different podcasts. And it's not really fair for me to actually put them out on my feed and monopolize what would be hits on the other feed. Even though there's absolutely no money coming into or going, well, there's a lot going out, uh, there's no money coming into this podcast, it's good to have correct analytics. Uh, so with that said, I do want to talk a little bit more about the 5 Minutes with an Astronomer podcast. Now, if you were timing any of it, you probably noticed we went over our time a couple times, especially when I talked about craters, because, well, it's what I do. It's what I've done for the last decade, so it's a little bit hard to compress and condense a decade's worth of research, plus a bunch of stuff that I haven't done, into five minutes. So we do go over sometimes. We really, really do try to keep it at about five to six-ish minutes, or at least five minutes of me talking, but... As you can see, we don't always make that. Uh, we aren't planning on going over 10 minutes. I think actually the Craters episode, probably we recorded for about 15 to 20, and Pat is amazing at being able to cut these down and make it seem almost seamless. In fact, I would say it probably is seamless to most people, uh, except sometimes to those of us who recorded who was like, wait a sec, I think I said something else there, but I don't hear it. Uh, anyway, with that said, there's a lot of material out there in Season 1. We cover things like, uh, well, what you just heard, but we also cover things like uh, gravitational lensing, special and general relativity, how GPS works, and uh, why we're made of star stuff. So all of these kinds of topics are out there, 
in Season 1. And what you can do is you can go to the website astronomyin5.com and you can find the podcast. And you should also be able to find it on pretty much any place podcasts aren't sold. So iTunes, Google Play Store, Libsyn, or Libsyn, Libsyn? whatever it is. Uh, If you use it, you know what it is. All those other places where you can find podcasts, at this point, you should be able to find this podcast and subscribe. Now, as I said, we are doing these in seasons, basically, when we have time to record. So the first season had 28 episodes. They're all out there. They're not being released uh, piecemeal, one every day or one every week or whatever. They're released all at once. And the second season will be when we have time. So this is another case where Keep it in your podcast feed, and new stuff will come out at some point in the future. With that in mind, we are open to people submitting topics. So anyone who has a question about astronomy or astronomy-related stuff that would work well with this format, you can send that to the podcast show. You can send it to me, and I'll forward it on, or I'll say, hey, we should discuss this, and uh, we can use that in Season 2. Now, the other thing is that there are two formats of the show. There's the format where Christina asks a question that uh, we're interested in, or there's the format where it's just a, tell me something that you find interesting about blah. So we've done, for example, what I find interesting about, well, impact craters, as you heard. Uh, But there's also what we find interesting about the moon or asteroids or Jupiter. In fact, in the Jupiter one, I completely forgot to even mention the great red spot. Pat corrected me at the end. So I think that you'll like it if you at all like listening to me, which I I still find interesting and odd that there's an audience for me. Uh, But I do think that you'll like it. And another thing is that we're hoping that this might be used in classrooms. So you'll notice that in several of the episodes, in fact, most of them, we tried to put in a critical thinking question based on the material. Uh, You'll find that in, as I said, pretty much every episode. Uh, Didn't quite make it into every episode, but the vast, vast majority of them have a critical thinking question where I turned to Pat and Christina, in fact, quite literally, because I was in their basement, and I asked them, well, so given that information, what do you think would happen if X? So for example, in the episode about seasons, I'll pregame it for you, I asked them, what do you think would happen on a planet where the spin axis is tilted directly at the sun, like Uranus? But even if you're not in school, you can always play along at home. I mean, these are questions that will get you thinking about the material and try to keep you engaged in the podcast and just sort of what happens when we push things. So that's actually something that I mentioned, I think, twice in season one, is that a reason why we study other planets and why we study other galaxies and other stars and other stuff out there is that, as far as we know... Everything in the universe operates by the same physics, but other places implement that physics differently. So that's what's kind of neat. It's always a way to learn the the stretches or the boundaries of our knowledge and our understanding of how things work by studying these other places. And I hope that does come across in at least some of those episodes. So with all of that said, and with all that in mind, I think that this show is actually running out at about a half hour. Hey, 
<laughs> a normal length episode, even though I kind of cribbed four other shows from another show. But I'm going to take what I can get at this point. So with that said, I'm going to let you go. Uh, again, apologies for not really saying anything or not having anything out for over six whole months now. But as I said, just Keep it in your feed, and in the meantime, if you need a, a fix of me for some odd reason, uh, go to astronomyin5.com and subscribe. I think there are over three or four hours worth of content on there now on a lot of different kinds of topics. That wraps up this, well, many topics for the 170th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, leave a comment on the blog post for the episode, leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, and you can even tweet me, at pseudoastro, that's P-S-E-U-D-O-A-S-T-R-O, or me personally, D-R Astro Stew. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Google Play, or your podcast website or service of choice. If you liked it, tell friends, family, random internet people that you, well, given people on the internet these days, most of them you probably hope you'll never meet in real life. 